Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 183. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. November's prize is a copy of Adrian Dillard's latest novel, Keeper of the Queen's Jewels, a novel of Jane Seymour. Thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. Next month, I'll be chatting to historian Matt Lewis about Richard III and the princes in the Tower. You don't want to miss this. Further details will be published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the jewellery of the Tudor queens is Dr. Nicola Tallis. Dr. Tallis is an independent historian who has worked as a curator, lecturer, and historical researcher. She's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a regular contributor to historical magazines. Nicola is the author of four books, Crown of Blood, Elizabeth's Rival, Uncrowned Queen, and All the Queen's Jewels, Power, Majesty, and Display. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome back to Talking Tutors, Nicola. How are you? I'm really well, Natalie. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be chatting to you again after what seems like ages. So because because it's been a little while, would you mind just reintroducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, of course. So I am Dr. Nicholas Hallis. I'm a Tudor historian and writer. I'm now the author of four books, soon to be five, um, which is quite exciting. And and I'm here today to talk to you about the subject of my latest book, All the Queen's Jewels, which is based on my doctorate, which I completed in 2019. So it's quite nice to see it transform from a thesis into a book. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about it. Fantastic. Yes, I saw your pick holding the the books that you received. That's a very exciting moment, isn't it? <laughs> very exciting moment. It's, it's one of those pinch me moments. You're like, oh my goodness, it's finally here. The sleepless nights. Exactly. It's here. Oh. It's here. <laughs> I always find it strange that something that's just an idea in your head is then suddenly this actual tangible thing that you can hold. It's so strange. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's really weird. And it's it's really nice. But at the same time, I don't know if you find this, you just feel really nervous because suddenly it is a thing and it's out or it will be out there ready for people to, you know, read and hopefully enjoy. But um, yeah, it's quite it's quite nerve wracking, isn't it? Absolutely. So so Nicola, tell us a little bit about sort of what inspired your love of jewellery and all things um, sparkly and what can readers expect to learn in this in this book, your new book? I was inspired to begin with by my dad, actually, which is quite bizarre because my dad's not a particularly sparkly person in terms of <laughs> in terms of jewellery. But he kind of said to me, I'm I'm really interested in jewels that queens wore when we we see them in in portraits, Tudor portraits. Um, And he was saying to me, you know, is there anything out there about this? Is there is there a gap for this? And actually, there there wasn't really anything out there about it. I mean, there's lots of literature about jewellery and the history of jewellery, but nothing that specifically targeted the Queens of the Wars of the Roses and the early Tudor Queens, which is the work that I've done. So yeah, it seemed like there was a gap in the market, so to speak, to to cover this. And when I began to delve into the sources, a really, really fascinating picture began to emerge. And I think what I would say is that this book is very, very different from any of my previous books so perhaps I need to prepare readers for that um <laughs> it's not a um it's not a narrative history as such it's a um it's what I would describe as being scholarly but hopefully also quite accessible and it's telling the story of these important queen consorts who you know there are 10 of them from Margaret of Anjou to Catherine Parr through the prism of their jewellery and trying to ascertain what we can learn about them as individuals what we can learn about them as consorts and you know the ways that they used jewels um, how they acquired jewels and what they actually had so that is the the purpose of the book and hopefully readers will learn a lot from it. <laughs> oh, it sounds brilliant. I have mine pre-ordered so I'm just 
very patiently oh. waiting for it to arrive. So yeah. I'm very much looking forward to it. So obviously oh. jewels at this point in time were much more than just kind of something to adorn your person with. So can you tell us a little bit about the significance and maybe the use as well of jewellery in the 15th and 16th centuries? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I like to describe them is as tangible tools um, because they were important items and objects that queens could use to demonstrate power. They were visual proclamations of wealth and status. And they they didn't just serve a decorative purpose. I mean, they that was part of their use was that they were supposed to enhance majesty and, and make one look nice. But they could also be used as, you know, as gifts in order to secure loyalties or broaden a queen's network. They could be used to to create an image and i think that this is something that we see particularly with two maybe three of henry viii's wives is that they they really did use their jewels as ways of um of image fashioning to create and shape um their image as consorts and uh, particularly with catherine parr actually uh, but also with anne boleyn and, and anne of cleves too so they could serve all sorts of of different purposes and their their high status and their high value because during this time the jewels used by queens were primarily fashioned from gold and adorned with any number of precious stones they were you know they were real enhancements of of majesty and real statements of yes look at me I really have got the best jewels available to to buy yes I know sometimes when I look at the different portraits I just think how amazing would that have looked in person when it looks so magnificent in just a kind of flat painting yeah I know and it's it's a real shame, actually, in some ways, because we have got surviving contemporary examples of Tudor jewels, but very, very few that we know definitely belonged to these queens. And the reason for that is because the 15th and 16th centuries were ages of rapidly changing fashions and what was fashionable to one generation was not necessarily fashionable to the next. And so it wasn't uncommon for these jewels to be melted down or broken up and recast and made into something completely new. And yeah, unfortunately for us, that's what happened in a lot of these cases. Yeah, such a pity, such a pity. Um, And can you talk to us a little bit about the ways in which a Tudor queen consort or a queen could acquire jewellery? Yeah, so she could acquire jewellery in any number of ways through foreign merchants for example we see examples of that in this period through gift giving and you know that's one of the ways of acquiring jewels that I've concentrated on in my research and also through her own commission by a goldsmiths and again we see evidence of that in this period it's kind of patchy because as in you know, most historical instances, we've got more evidence in some quarters than others. But I would say that, yeah, gift giving and commissioning jewels via goldsmiths were two of the most important ways through which a queen could acquire jewels. And presumably, Nicola, you've you've looked at lots of jewel inventories or whatever survives out there, which is really exciting for the Tudor queens. So what did you discover when you were looking at these documents? What insights came to you then? 
do you know they are so exciting so there are there are four inventories that um, survive relating to the jewels of the six wives of Henry VIII. And these are uh, one that was created in the aftermath of Jane Seymour's death. There was one that was created at the time of Catherine Howard's fall, one that was created at the time of, more shortly after Henry VIII's death for Catherine Parr, and then another one for Catherine Parr, which encompasses her personal effects, which were um, removed from Sudley Castle, where she died in 1548. And they are amazing um, because you kind of do get some insights into the quantity of jewellery that these queens had available to them. I mean, in Jane Seymour's inventory, for example, there are just over 500 pieces, wow. um, which is absolutely staggering. And, um, and, a lot of these were what I would call lower value jewels. Um, so they they were probably jewels that Jane would have used on an everyday basis. So things like beads, things like there, there was a nice a, a gold book that was given to her stepdaughter Elizabeth as a gift and more functional jewels that she would have used in her everyday life. And uh, the purpose of this inventory that was composed in order to ascertain what was being given away after Jane's death. So a number of these pieces were given away to members of her household, probably as a way of thanks for, for good service. And then we look at Catherine Howard's inventory, and these were this was composed of her royal jewels. So jewels that didn't necessarily belong to her personally, that but had been given to her at the time that she acquired her role as queen and that were then passed on to her successor, Catherine Parr. Um, and we know this because we see a number of the same pieces appearing in both inventories. And these are, these are super interesting as well, because as I say, they are super high status jewels. They probably had been used by Catherine Howard's predecessors but we don't know that for sure unfortunately um and i mean they just what's really exciting is when not only you can track these jewels and trace them between queens um, but also when you can see some of them in portraits of queens and we see that particularly in catherine parr's case and I think what's particularly interesting in Catherine Parr's case that we can learn from her inventory is, as I said, a number of the pieces in her collection matched with those of Catherine Howard. But we also see other pieces that enter the collection. And these are very much a reflection of Catherine's personality. So I think she was very, very interested in majesty and royalty and the projection of that. And so you see in the inventory, a lot of her jewels have a royal theme, which I think is probably an attempt by her to you know, reinforce her exalted status. Um, and what's really interesting, actually, also, is that there is a further inventory of jewellery that was recorded in August 1553. So just at the time that Mary I had become queen, and we see that a lot of the same pieces that appear in Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr's inventory were also inherited by Mary. So I think that that's really quite exciting when you can see that continuity and that that those pieces have been passed on is, is quite exciting. And, you know, from there, probably a lot of those pieces were 
broken up and, and recast by Elizabeth, I would suggest. Not all of them, but but a lot of them. And Mary gives a lot of those pieces away as well. Um, so it's really interesting. The inventories allow us to see what these queens had access to and in some instances, how they added to and enhanced the collection. And, you know, in other instances, what became of that collection. That is so fascinating. And I can just imagine how excited you were when you could, you know, note one in one inventory and then find it again in another. That must have been really, really exciting. And it's interesting that you make that distinction between obviously the personal jewellery of the Queen and the the kind of royal jewels, because Mm -hmm. um, am I right in thinking that if it's the personal sort of jewels, in theory, they should have been allowed to kind of keep that if anything happened with their marriage. But the the royal collection is something that obviously belongs to the position. Is that would that be right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know we see with with Anne of Cleves, for example, that at the time that she separates from Henry VIII, he gives her permission to keep all of her personal jewels, and uh, presumably a lot of these are pieces that maybe she had brought with her from Cleves or that Henry had given her as gifts or that she had commissioned herself. And presumably then the royal jewels that were inherited by um, Catherine Howard had also been used by Anne of Cleves previously. It's interesting to think, isn't it, how that the the sort of new queen would have felt putting on those pieces of jewellery that, well, for example, Jane Seymour, like, you know, some of those pieces must have adorned Anne Boleyn at some point, and then Jane gets yeah. them. It's a sort of strange kind of thing, but obviously they're symbolic of queenship, so I, I understand why you would have worn it, but it, yeah. it must have had a sort of strange psychological effect. Yeah, no, I'm sure that there must have there must have been an element of that. So there is a um there is a tall cross or a three-sided T-shaped cross uh, that appears in both Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr's inventories. And Catherine uh Catherine Parr can be seen wearing it in her miniature, probably by Lavina Tierlink, that's in Suvi Castle. And Jane Seymour can also be seen wearing the same tall cross in, in this miniature. And it has been speculated that this could have been owned by Anne Boleyn. I would argue that actually it may even have come from Catherine of Aragon. So um, I think that there is a high probability that a lot of these jewels were, you know, owned by all of Henry VIII's queens. And yeah, it must be, it must have been quite a bizarre, strange experience for these successors, knowing what had happened to the previous wives. Yeah. Quite weird. But... <laughs> so fascinating. All right. Well, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, the goldsmiths and the craft people, mm-hmm. the crafts people that are actually making these jewels, because you did talk about Queen's commissioning jewelry as well, and maybe people commissioning for gifts. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. So again, we've got we've got more evidence in some quarters than others. We do know that Catherine Parr, for example, her favoured goldsmith was a Dutchman called Peter Richardson. And there is also evidence that Richardson worked for the king. He also worked for Jane Seymour and Anne of Cleves. So it's certainly possible that he'd also have worked for um, Catherine Howard. So again, that's something that I think is, is quite interesting, the fact that, you know, it's not just the fact that queens are expected to recycle and and handle secondhand jewels but they're also to many intents and purposes expected to use secondhand jewelers so to speak um, which is quite interesting and Peter Richardson we think completed a number of important commissions for, for Catherine Parr 
in particular. He is quite prominent at the Tudor court, but we don't know a great deal about him. Uh, Another one who's really important is Cornelius Hayes, who we know worked for Anne Boleyn, and he had created Anne Boleyn's New Year gift to Henry VIII in 1534, which of course is the famous magnificent golden fountain, you know, with the, the naked women encrusted with all sorts of jewels. So goldsmiths were, they had a really, really important role to play at the Tudor court. And the nature of their work and the fact that queens were using them quite often to fulfill specialised commissions, suggests that they came into personal contact with the Queen's quite a lot, which again, you know, that's, that's quite significant. And I think what's quite interesting is, I always love talking about Anne of Cleves when I talk about jewels, because I think perceptions of Anne are are starting to change, which is great, but I still think that there is some way to go in in highlighting her significance. And this was a really exciting moment for me when I was researching the book, because I do think that we see another side of her through her jewel collection, because in just that short six-month period when she was queen, she was coming into contact with all manner of goldsmiths. There are about six or seven different ones who are named in her accounts. And, you know, they they range from Peter Richardson and Cornelius Hayes to some who are perhaps less familiar and that we don't really know a great deal about. Um, So one, for example, is called Robert Cooper. And it's really, really interesting because... Anne was spending an absolute fortune on jewels in this period. And to me, uh, that almost suggests that she almost kind of had this feeling that maybe things weren't going to last that long. And so she thought, well, I might as well make the most of it. And (laughs) so we do, we see her engaging with all of these goldsmiths to fulfill all manner of personalized special commissions for her, including saddles. So she had jeweled saddles. She had a great seal that was created by a goldsmith for her. So, you know, it just goes to show. Oh, and she also had spangles, which were to form a part of the livery of the members of her household. So these goldsmiths were fulfilling all manner of different commissions for queens. And this is something actually that we also see in the accounts of of Elizabeth of York, which sadly, of course, only survived for the last year of her life. But those also show that she was engaging with a various number of of goldsmiths. So it suggests that these craftsmen were people that queens were in regular contact with, and that they used to fulfill special commissions on their behalf, and also you know, to create things for members of their household. So, you know, they they were really, really important. And there are a huge number of them at the Tudor court. Yes, there's like an army, isn't there? An army of craftspeople and artisans. And and sometimes we forget about that level. I think you're right. And they are, of course, the people creating the props, you know, for the Tudor court and and magnificent. So it's it's really um, lovely to hear more about them. And I just love Anna Cleves. I think she's just constantly surprising us. And I just, I adore her. I think she's fabulous. And I'm so happy that the spotlight's kind of turning towards her more, which was really great. And I think another good point is just the fact that you were saying about the saddles. And so we're not just talking kind of necklaces and rings, are we? We're talking jewels on, on a wide range of items. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you do see, you know, she orders a couple of rings, she orders a lovely table diamond. Um, but yeah, there are those more practical items as well. And to me, that sort of suggests that perhaps as a foreign born queen, it's a way of trying to create this really magnificent image to impress upon her subjects. So and that she's able to use the services of these goldsmiths in order to help her with that. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. And of course, without without the similar surviving accounts for for other queens we don't know if if that was something that was standard i suppose but you know this is something that we kind of see with margaret of anjou a lot earlier is that she was very generous with giving gifts of jewels and i would suggest that that's a similar kind of thing going on that she's trying to as a foreign-born queen trying to build this network around her and, and trying to impress Yes, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about about gifts, about jewels as gifts. So obviously, you know, you could mark a special event with a, a gift of a jewel like we do now still. So tell us about some of the situations in which such a gift to a queen would have been appropriate. So a gift of a jewel could mark some of the key life cycle events in, in a queen's life. So for example, the birth of a child, we see you know, gifts of jewels being given on those occasions. Um, New Year, that was, of course, the main gift giving event of the season at the Tudor Court. And that was primarily when you would see gifts of jewels exchanged. Also, we see gifts of jewels given to, to family members. So, you know, Elizabeth of York, she made her son, future Henry VIII, gifts of two jewels that we know about, one of which was a jeweled cross. So they could also, you know, be used as signs of affection between family members. And they were also used as ways of securing loyalty. So I guess you could call them bribes in that sort of sense. <laughs> and then we do see gifts of jewels being taken as bribes in this period as well. So most significantly in the instance of Catherine Parr, uh, sorry, Catherine Howard, who was, you know, later accused of having given Thomas Culpepper gifts of jewels and, and also to um to one of her ladies in her household, which it was said that that was given to ensure this lady's silence. So, uh, and interestingly, that during the trial proceedings of Anne Boleyn, it was mentioned that she had used gifts of jewels to entice her brother, Lord Rochford, into committing incest with her. So it was kind of an example of the way in which gifts of jewels could look suspicious when taken out of context. And in this instance, how um, Anne's accusers had used the whole gift-giving system as a, a way of manipulating you know, her guilt. So there were all sorts of different contexts that jewels might appear in, but um, more often than not, it was courtiers and, and people who were giving the jewels to the queen. So to receive a gift of a jewel from a queen, unless you were a, a very, very close friend or a key family member, that was quite a rarity. And so that served to really reinforce their importance. Uh, so we see, for example, in 1535, that Anne Boleyn gave a gift of, I think it was a jeweled belt 
or a girdle, something yeah. like that, to yeah. gray. Oh, there we go. Yes, it was. <laughs> and she actually and... took it off her waist and handed it to him, which added to that kind of personal touch, which was quite theatrical, I think. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So the significance of that came not just in the value of the jewel, but the fact that it had been the Queen's own property. And, you know, we see examples of that during this period as well, which is which is really quite interesting and exciting. Um, so there's there's lots of that going on. And the great thing about that as well is that in that instance and, you know, other instances that we see, the gift of the jewel was great for the receiver um, but for whoever was giving it, so Anne Boleyn in this instance, it served as a good way of providing something to, you know, in thanks or recognition for loyalty without incurring additional costs as well. So that's something really important. Very clever. No wonder she had a surplus in her budget. She's very, very <laughs> clever woman. <laughs> So if we think about portraiture that we all love so much, what can yes. we learn about jewels from looking at these magnificent paintings and miniatures of the period? Oh, so much, so much. I mean, they do show us, as I as I touched on earlier, it's quite interesting when you can actually identify a jewel in two or three portraits and that provides evidence that these objects were passing from queen to queen, which is exciting in itself. And they also tell us about the way that queens wore these jewels and about the messages that they wanted to convey about themselves. And I think that we see this particularly in, in the instance of, of Catherine Parr, but also in, in, in Jane Seymour's instance where they wear these magnificent ooshes around their neck. I just love the word oosh. I think it's the best It's a great word, isn't it? I love it too. It's so brilliant. Oosh, my favourite word. So (laughs) basically a particularly elaborate jewel that was quite often attached to um, a pendant or a brooch. And I think that these jewels were particularly valuable and were, I think that that's part of the reason why they were chosen by these queens in these portraits as a way of saying, yeah, look at me. I am the Queen of England and this is what I have. This is what I have access to. Um, so I think that we see a lot of that in portraits, Yeah, as I say, particularly with Catherine Parr and particularly in Catherine's portrait by Master John, which was probably painted around about the time of her regency in 1544, maybe 1545. And all of her jewels in that portrait, I think, were very specifically chosen to convey this message of majesty and power and authority and we see that particularly also in the um the adoption of the crown brooch that she wears at her breast and i think it was susan james who suggested that that piece may have been commissioned specifically by catherine for um oh sorry by peter richardson which is certainly possible and I think it really reflects Catherine's interest in in royalty and again is another way of saying check me out this is what I've got I'm queen of England this is me at the height of my power nobody can mistake who I am um and so I think that I think that's also that's that's something super interesting and the other thing that I'd say we can learn about jewels from portraits is the way in which the Tudors wore their clothes. So we do pay a lot of attention to these really in-your-face ooshes and, you know, the beautiful rings and so on and so forth. But we also see 
in portraits of um of Catherine Parr again these gorgeous beautiful little jeweled aglets or pins I guess which were used to to join items of clothing together to hold them together and I think that that's something that's perhaps overlooked but that is equally important when we start thinking about the ways in which queens fashioned themselves and how they actually came to dress and you know the logistics of keeping these pieces in place and it just goes to show that nothing was overlooked so you know it was just as important that these little pins were jeweled as it was that they were wearing these jewels around their necks yeah, wouldn't you just love seeing, seeing a Tudor queen being prepared for the day or for a, a big event? It must have taken a long time and just been yeah. so amazing. Such a treat. I'd love to have seen that. <laughs> Me too. Yes. So it seems that nothing really was by accident in these portraits, right? Everything no. had, had a meaning and a, a symbolism attached to it. Yeah, I think. And when we consider that apart from royalty, few people would have sat for their portraits more than once in a lifetime, slightly different for queens of course but or probably different for a lot of queens but nevertheless most sitters would have adopted their best jewels their best clothes for these portraits and presumably in some instances would have had some control over the message that they wanted to convey and yeah they probably would have have chosen these pieces with a great deal of care and to reflect whatever it was that they wanted to come across. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit about the Tudor crown jewels. So these were obviously incredibly important. So can you tell us a little bit about their function, their particular function and their significance as well? Yeah, so the crown jewels were and continue to be the most important jewels in the royal collection. And they also had a completely unique role to play in the symbolism of monarchy. Now, in the case of of the Tudors or the Tudor queens in particular, there's no evidence that the latter four of Henry VIII's wives ever used the crown jewels at all. Presumably they would have had access to them, but of course we know that Anne Boleyn was the last of Henry's consorts to be crowned, so she was the last person to have used them. And um, we know, thanks to an inventory that was compiled of the crown jewels, one that was compiled at the time um, that Henry VIII's inventory was was taken and one that was completed in the 17th century prior to their destruction because sadly we don't have these pieces anymore which is an absolute travesty (laughs) yeah it's terrible but we'll move away from that um (laughs) but we do know that the the Tudor state crown was the most important piece in the Tudor collection and that this was created either for Henry VII or Henry VIII and those of um, your listeners who've been to Hampton Court will know, of course, that you can see the replica of the Tudor state crown on display there. And it is magnificent. It is so splendid. In terms of what the queens had, there are far fewer pieces. So in Henry VIII's inventory, there were only 
There were 18 items that were listed as crown jewels that were used at the coronation of monarchs, but only three of these were specifically listed as being for the use of the queen. And I think that that's really a reflection of the fact that the king, of course, was considered to be far more important, far more superior than the queen. Um, But these jewels were primarily used at the coronation of, of monarchs, but they were also used... At the beginning of the Tudor period, at least, for crown wearing days. Um, So these were public occasions on which the king and queen would appear bedecked in their crowns. And we know certainly that Elizabeth of York partook in these crown wearing days. Um, But there's no evidence, there's no real evidence that any of Henry VIII's wives ever did so because the importance of this had declined by the reign of of Henry VII and certainly by the reign of Henry VIII. So um, what we do know is that Anne Boleyn was given the great privilege of being crowned with St. Edward's crown, which was a crown that was traditionally used only for the coronation of male monarchs. So I think that this was a very deliberate strategy, perhaps on Anne's behalf, but certainly on Henry's, to reinforce her exalted status. And uh, unfortunately, that St. Edward's crown no longer survives any longer. The the one that we have now dates from the reign of of Charles II. There is also evidence that another crown was made especially for Anne, but we can't identify this any further in the inventories, unfortunately. It's probable that, of course, that was was melted down later later as well. Um, And we do also know that it was traditional for queens to receive a coronet to or a circlet to wear in their coronation procession. Um, And we know that in Catherine of Aragon's instance, this one disappeared into the hands of the Lord Protector Somerset in 1550. And from there on, its fate is unknown, but presumably, you know, that was broken down. But these crown jewels, they really, they really served to reinforce this image of a monarch's God-ordained right to rule and were a vital part of that projection of splendour and divine authority. Yes, Nicola, am I right in thinking that in a portrait of, I think it's James the first that there is one of the, one of the Tudor crowns appears in the background? Is that is that correct? Well, there is. Um, there's one in there, a portrait of Henrietta Maria of the of the Queen's crown, oh, and oh. that is actually the only visual representation we have of the Queen's crown that presumably would have been used by Henry VIII's first two wives. Um, so we have no other, yeah, no other images of it than that. So it's, it's yeah, it's this portrait of Henrietta Maria that's in the Royal Collection. I think there is one in in Charles the First's James the First and Charles the First portraits of. Yeah, I feel them. like I've, I've seen that or read that before. That one of the Tudor state crowns is in the yeah. background there before, obviously before they all got melted down. But um, yeah. but I haven't looked at the Henrietta Maria one, so I'm, I need um, to go and look at that one now. Send you a picture of it. It's, yeah. uh, it's quite yeah, it's quite wow. But it's what's quite interesting as well is that in the inventory of the crown jewels that was drawn up during the interregnum before they were broken down is that the queen's crown was valued at considerably less than the king's crown so again it's kind of a further 
reinforcement of the fact that queens were almost surplus in in some respects, or they were very much considered to play the supporting role. And of course, the main the main power figure was considered to be the king. Nicola, how has jewellery been used as a tool to re-identify the sitters in Tudor portraits? And here I'm thinking of an example um, that I read about with Catherine Parr's portrait that was once thought to be Lady Jane Grey. Yeah, yeah. So that one, that re-identification came about in 1996 by Catherine's biographer, Susan James. And when I think about it now, I think it seems kind of obvious that it was never Lady Jane Grey. It's quite weird. I, you know... I'd grown up thinking this is Lady Jane Grey and it's only when you come to sort of study things uh, closer that you think, okay. But anyway, so jewels, they can be absolutely crucial in this respect. And um, yes, so in that instance, Susan James was able to re-identify this portrait based not only on the, the crown jewel, which I mentioned briefly earlier that Catherine wears at her breast, but also a number of the other jewels that appear in an inventory of Catherine's. So particularly she um, she wears these beautiful, these beautiful beads attached to her waist with what, what are called antique faces. Um, they were probably cameos, actually, which were very, very rare, very, very expensive. And, and those appear in Catherine's inventory as well. And at the bottom of these beads, there's a very tiny clock. You have to look really closely to be able to see it, but it's amazing. And that too appears in Catherine's inventory. So jewellery does have a really, really important role to, to play in the re-identification of portraits. It doesn't always help. It can be very frustrating sometimes uh but that's the most significant instance that that I can think of um and what's also interesting I think is the role that jewelry can play in reaffirming things or confirming things that we may have speculated on previously um and in this respect I'm thinking of the portrait of Margaret Pohl with who wears a bracelet with the little wine barrel at her wrist which I think is really interesting obviously a huge nod to the fact that her father the Duke of Clarence was drowned in in a butt of Malmsey wine so a little reminder there and quite quite remarkable really that That obviously that she chose to well did she choose to remember her father in that way we don't know but I think that jewellery in that respect has a very, very uh, tantalising and intriguing role to play. It is really interesting, isn't it? Because when I first heard the story of the Duke of Clarence being obviously drowned or killed in this way, I thought, oh, that can't be true. That just sounds, I don't know, too crazy. But then her wearing that and you think must have happened, I guess. Or or is that just reaffirming the the sort of legend? I don't know. It's it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's really, really interesting. And yes, it's it's so intriguing. Yeah, so I suggest everyone go look at that portrait. That's actually, I haven't looked at that in a while, so I'll have to do that as well. Yeah, Um, do. (laughs) Now, I need to ask you another question that I know when when I mentioned to my lovely patrons on Patreon that I was going to be chatting with you. There were a couple of people really interested to hear your opinion on the, what appears to be an A necklace that the Princess Elizabeth is wearing in a portrait that I think does hang it at Hampton Court as well, the family of Henry VIII. So what do you think about that? Do you think that possibly could have been Anne's, um, Anne Boleyn's necklace? I definitely do, because I can't see that 
you know, that Henry VIII would have ordered a necklace for Elizabeth specifically with, with an A initial. And we do know that, of course, Anne had lots of initial pieces. So yes, I do think that it's likely that it was owned by Anne. And I've written a little bit about this recently in in the book that my personal view on this is that because there's been a lot of speculation, as you know, as to, well, why would she have worn that necklace in this image? And my own feeling on it is that actually it was... Uh, she was told to wear it by Henry to all intents and purposes. And I think that it was a way of highlighting that, yes, Elizabeth was the king's daughter, but she was illegitimate. And that was all thanks to her mother. Because, you know, when you look at that portrait and you see, of course, at the forefront, Henry, Edward, Jane Seymour, that is the Tudor dynasty. That's the way that Henry sees the dynasty going. And I think with Mary and Elizabeth, they're very much in the background, but they are still there because they are still Henry's daughters. And I think that, yeah, that this jewel was worn by Elizabeth as a way of highlighting, yes, she has got status as the king's daughter, but she hasn't got a claim to the throne because of her mother's treason and treachery. And I think that possibly the same could be true of a jewel that Mary's wearing, which is a cross necklace, which I don't know. It's only speculative, but you know we do know that Catherine of Aragon left Mary a cross jewel in her will. So could this, could this again be a further sign of that? I don't know, but that's my own feeling on it is that, yes, it was definitely owned by Anne because I just can't see any other explanation for it. That's a really interesting theory, Nicola. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just thinking about that cross jewel. I do remember also reading that I think because it was not very valuable that Henry was quite happy, yeah. of course, for Mary to have it. And and it sounds very Henry-like to want them both wearing something that um, emphasizes Edward's, you know, legitimacy and, and Jane Seymour. So that that's really interesting. Thank you. So I can't let you go, of course, without asking you about your favorite piece of Tudor jewelry. I know not a lot survives connected to the queens but just in terms of 16th century jewelry what what are the ones you love or what your your favorite one oh it has to be the lennox jewel so obviously dates dates from a bit later but i just think and and created by margaret lennox or lady margaret douglas countess lennox and i just think that that is just so spectacular and just with all the beautiful sapphires and rubies and diamonds in it i think it is so evocative of what what sort of jewels these queens must have had access to and and must have worn and just how that one piece I mean I know that that's a particularly splendid example but just how dazzling that is and how incredible that would have looked you know I just think it's it's absolutely beautiful and that's absolutely my favorite and feel very fortunate that we do still have that and actually that you know that that has a really intriguing and fascinating tale to tell and that we don't really know the full story behind it today it's it's encompasses all sorts of hidden symbolism and uh, messages and I love that that there are still interpretations of that that are you know being talked about today which I think is great 
That is a beautiful piece. Um, I think there are definitely pictures online that people can see. So yes. have a look at the, the Lennox stool as well. I love that. And the very final thing, Nicola, is the Tudor takeaway. So I do ask all my guests for a suggestion for our listeners to go off and check out after the episode. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Okay. Yes, I do. So, well, actually I have two, if that's okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> one of which is Tudor and Jacobean Jewellery, which is a brilliant book by Diana Scarisbrick, who is the queen of jewellery, really, in my opinion. Um, and it's really brilliant. I think it provides a really good overview and introduction of jewellery in the Tudor period and what it was made of, how it was used, um, what we have. So I would definitely recommend that. And if that really tickles your fancy and you are excited and intrigued to find out more, then I would definitely recommend having a look at the V&A website, which, and if you just type in Tudor jewellery, you'll see an amazing selection of gorgeous survivals pop up and they are just amazing. They're just beautiful. And there's so much that we can learn about them. There are so many different examples. And I would definitely um, suggest that your listeners go and have a look at that if they're interested in, in jewellery. That sounds wonderful. And if you're ever nearby the V&A, please visit. It is just an amazing experience, isn't it, with all the other artifacts yeah. that are there as well. So they're, they're wonderful. And I feel another book purchase coming on, Nicola, every time I <laughs> talk to someone. Oh, yeah, you have to get that. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and talking tutors with us. It's been such a pleasure and I cannot wait to read your book. I'm so looking forward to it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Natalie. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music